and welcome to episode five of the God in Film podcast, where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm media coordinator and patron saint of nerds, Giles Goff. And I'm a man who, against all medical advice, continues to call himself Phil Coleman. And during this period of social distancing, we'll be trying to hold off the desire to kick over bins by sticking our film geek baseball caps on to analyse the faith parallels in the 1999 Christian fantasy film Dogma, directed by the iconic Kevin Smith. We'll be looking at the confusion around Matthew 16.9, finding out what a plenary indulgence is, and asking the important question, does God have a sense of humour? Now, it's important to note that whilst our podcast has clean language, Kevin Smith's dogma does not. So if you're easily offended, please be aware of this one. However, I'd also like to point out that Terminator dealt with like the mass genocide of the entire human race. So if that doesn't offend you, and this does, you may want to re-evaluate your priorities. <laughs> Phil, can you remember what you thought the first time you saw this film? Got to say, he writes a tight script, does Kevin Smith. It's one of those films where it sort of, at the same time, pokes fun at Christian and believing in God but also sort of celebrates it a little bit as well like it's not just going out of its way to say God and Christianity is really awful and no one should believe in God it's more Mm -hmm. saying everyone's got their way of living their life and if you believe in God cool if you don't believe in God, also cool. I, I quite liked it for that. I think it's yeah, got a good message. Yeah. It's got a good heart. I absolutely adore this film. It, it's possibly the first Kevin Smith film I ever saw. For a, a generation of us, he made us think that we could make our own films and put them out there. And I think I'm always going to be grateful to Kevin Smith for that. Yeah. Also, the way he writes is just beautiful. I mean, if you ask Kevin Smith fans what their favourite films are, most of them will either pick this film or Chasing Amy, which I feel like Chasing Amy should be mandatory viewing for every man ever because it teaches us that the women we love are allowed to have a past that is just as complicated and frankly as unflattering as our own. I really think the way he writes is a gift from God. Um, yeah, the sort of flow and the characters that he can create and the, the situations he puts them in they all seem to just sort of work so beautifully when I was in America I made friends with a girl called Christy and she was maybe 16, 17 years old and after Camp America, bless her Christy drove me two hours from Pennsylvania to New Jersey just so I could visit the quick stop where Clerks is filmed and <laughs> Jay and Silent Bob's secret stash where I actually got this little fella which is my own my own little statuette of a, a buddy Christ, which features fairly importantly in the film. And I was served at the till by Walt Flanagan, a friend of Kevin Smith's, and who tends to appear in virtually all his films. So I'm connected to Kevin Smith by one degree of separation. Anyway, Phil, have you got some facts for us? Yes. It is the fourth film in Smith's View Askew Universe series. View Askew was the original sort of production name that Kevin Smith used. He would create a, a shared universe where characters in one of his films would reference characters in other films. It wouldn't be a direct sequel, but they were they were all they all sort of centered around Red Bank, New Jersey, and they all knew each other and made references to each other. A lot of people would say that the MCU sort of stole this idea of a, a shared cinematic universe of Kevin Smith, but of course Kevin Smith stole the idea of a shared universe from Marvel Comics. So it has this nice kind of cyclical feel to oh, it. I quite like that. I do anyway, quite like please that. continue. 
It has an ensemble cast featuring Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, George Carlin, Alanis Morissette, and Alan Rickman, God rest his soul, which is a weird thing for me to say, um, <laughs> as well as series regulars Jason Mewes, Jason Lee, and Kevin Smith himself. The story revolves around two fallen angels who plan to employ an alleged loophole in Catholic dogma to return to heaven after being cast out by God. But as existence is founded on the principle that God is infallible, their success would prove God wrong, thus undoing all creation, which, to be honest, is a bit of a downer. Uh, yeah, so the last scion and two prophets are sent by the Seraph Metatron to stop them. The film's irreverent treatment of Catholicism and the Catholic Church triggered considerable controversy even before its opening. The Catholic League denounced it as blasphemy. Organised protests delayed its release in many countries and led to at least two death threats against Smith. Uh, so yeah, Roger Ebert noted that no official objection came from the Catholic Church itself. That Catholic Defamation League, they had no connections whatever to the, whatsoever to the official sort of Catholic Church. Church. Silent Bob speaks a total of three words in the movie. No ticket on the train. And thanks after Rufus talks to Jay before going back to heaven. Silent Bob is Kevin Smith. For anybody who's, yes. un who's uncertain why we, why we keep talking about this. He took the idea of Hitchcock's having a cameo in his films and took it one step further and made himself a supporting character in the first film. And then sort of the character started to gradually become more central to, to the narratives. Yeah, I really like Silent Bob as a character. There's yeah. something about him. Uh, a reference to Christ is made in almost all of Bethany's initial encounters with other characters. Yeah, I did not notice that, but I'm going to watch that again. I found this out after watching it. So now I'm going to have to rewatch it <laughs> and be mm -hmm. like, oh yeah. So Rufus's line about Jesus Christ, knew him, man. That guy owes me 12 bucks, was improvised by Chris Rock. Now, I, I paraphrase that line slightly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, no. The line in the original screenplay was, knew him, I saw him naked. <laughs> <laughs> That's Which brilliant. I quite like, but I think yeah. Chris Rock's ad lib line was a lot better. Bob Shrek, Joe Nozomack, and Jim Marford all make cameos as church parishioners. They all work with Kevin Smith in comics. Kevin Smith wrote one of my favourite comic books ever. He did a run on Daredevil back in the late 90s, uh, and it's called Guardian Devil. And the reason I like it is that religion doesn't really play much of a part in the Marvel comics. It, it tends to be sort of talked around. It's never really referenced directly. Yeah. Daredevil is quite famously uh, a Catholic superhero. The story ends with Matt Murdock in a confession booth talking to a priest, and then he hears something off in the distance. And then it says, where have you gone, Matt? Where have you gone? And it just ends with a little caption that just says, to do my father's work, Padre, to do my father's work. And I loved that because it felt like something that could reconcile having a relationship with God and being a superhero as well. And you just don't see that anywhere else. And I yeah. absolutely adored that. It, when yeah. this lockdown's over, I'd love to borrow that off you if you I uh, will if you lend that to you because it. <laughs> it's definitely worth it, worth a read. Azrael references Hamlet by William Shakespeare. I need you three to shuffle her loose the mortal coil from Hamlet's mm -hmm. infamous to be or not to be soliloquy from Act yeah. 3, Scene 1. I quite like the term. Like it's it feels yeah. it fe it feels like I'm more intelligent than I am <laughs> when I say it. So <laughs> Um, I have made a career out of looking more intelligent than I am. If you can make a career out of it, then maybe you're just intelligent. Emma Thompson was going to appear in the film as God, but she backed out oh. before filming. You know when you you you, you hear about a, an almost casting? Yeah, and when yeah, you, yeah. When you know these little facts, you can't 
unsee it. Alanis Morissette does a great job as God, but I would have given anything to see Emma Thompson as yeah as God. No, I, I was thinking that when I read this, I was like, oh, but imagine Emma Thompson as God. So she had to duck out because she was having a baby. Unbeknown to protesters, Kevin Smith joined one of the Catholic groups that protested his film. He managed to get interviewed by a reporter who recognised him. <laughs> just, just give I'll a give you a minute. He managed mm-hmm. to get interviewed by a reporter who recognised him, though Smith managed to stay incognito by giving his friend's name as his own, Brian Johnson, also present yeah. at the protest rally, um, <laughs> and telling her that he's often mistaken for the clerk's director. <laughs> Which is, I mean, possibly the most Kevin Smith thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, you would if you could, wouldn't you? You know, go and join the protesters outside. Can I join in, lads? <laughs> mm. I love uh, that. And the last one, that. and the Buddy Christ statue that was used in the film is on display as of mid two thousand and one at Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash. A comic book yeah, store I have my phone taken next to it. Uh, and replicas of the statue are on sale, which brings us very nicely back to the fact that you actually went and bought one. I don't know if they still make it. I mean, this one's been with me now for the past sort of 15 years, so that's... uh, Well, apparently it's still one of the store's biggest selling items, so I wouldn't imagine that they're going to stop making them anytime soon. Thank you for those, Phil. I really enjoyed those, as you can tell from my wheezy laughter. Now... (laughs) There's some very specific questions that we had about this film that, frankly, were beyond us. So I actually pulled in a guest uh, today called Adrian Berry. He's a, a theologian, and I'll let him introduce himself. Hello, I'm Adrian Berry. I come from England, uh, but I now live in Hungary. I studied theology in Mattersea Bible College, and I have a diploma in religious studies from Cambridge University. I have been a pastor, and I've been a Bible College lecturer in Budapest. And I'm a complete theology geek, so I just love uh, digging into real difficult theological issues. Thank you so much for joining us today, Adrian. We've got some really quite meaty questions, so I'm just going to jump straight into them. Is that okay? Yes. How did the church go from being the early church as we know it, the sort of 12 apostles and a few extras, into the Catholic church that we know today? The apostles really didn't know what they were doing at the beginning. When Jesus went to heaven, he said, just get on with it. But they preached the gospel, people were saved, and then the church uh, exploded, really. Just people went in every direction. They preached the gospel, churches were founded, uh, there was no control, no centralised things going on. And we have little idea of what went on for the first couple of hundred years, apart from what Luke writes in in the book of Acts. And it just became gradually ever more centralised and ever more controlling. First of all, there was the the rise of the bishops, so one bishop over a city, and eventually, of course, Rome being the capital of the the empire also became the central church of, of Christendom. Christianity was persecuted until 313 AD when Constantine uh, I issued an edict, an edict of toleration basically, but he not only tolerated Christianity, he also promoted it. And gradually over that century, Christianity became the official religion of the, of the Roman Empire. And when that happened, of course, people became Christians not necessarily by conviction, but because of self-interest. And uh... I was just going to ask quickly, do you think Constantine was sincere in his beliefs or do you think it was something to use to hold the empire together it's difficult to say he attributed his victory in a battle to uh, to the christian god and from then on he favored christianity but he wasn't himself baptized until very late in life so 
Whether he was okay. totally convinced or not is, is, is disputed. In the year 1000, the church split. There was the first major split between the East and the West. The Roman Catholic Church was established with the, the Pope as a head, but the Eastern Church was much more fragmented. There were various different churches with various heads. From then on, more new uh, doctrines were introduced, like um, priestly celibacy, for example. That's only from, a, from about that time. Indulgences are on, only date from around 1000. Papal infallibility is only like 18th century or 19th century. As recent as yes, that? Yes, it was the first Vatican Council that dis- discussed that. With the film Dogma, one of the key sort of lines of scripture that the plot hangs on is Matthew 16, 19. I'm just wondering, how would you explain how that has been interpreted or possibly misinterpreted? Okay, this is the, the, the time when Jesus asks his disciples, uh, who, do pe- who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And Peter says, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter's name was uh, Simon, it was Shimon, his Jewish name. But Jesus gives him the name Peter, which is the Greek for a stone. Uh, mm. Actually, in, in the Greek, the, uh, the two words are different. It says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. So Petros is a little stone, and Petra is a huge rock. So it's, not actually, it's not actually Peter that, uh, that the church is built on, but it's the rock. So what is the rock? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that no other foundation can be laid except the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Mm. Another place he says... The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. So actually, it's really Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, that is the foundation stone of the church. He said, Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom. So you get all these pictures of Peter being up in heaven, you know, with the keys and who's gonna, he's going to let yeah. in and all that, that sort of stuff. There are lots of views of what the keys are. My personal view is that the keys of the kingdom is, is the gospel. So people yeah. can't enter the kingdom of God without actually hearing and believing the gospel. And I think that, that is actually what the keys are. And of course, Peter was the first one to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost. He, he used the keys for the first time. That's yeah. what I think. That makes that makes total sense. The thing I wanted to focus in on was the what you hold to be true in on earth will hold true in heaven what you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven that's that's what it says also says that in matthew 18 it's interesting because jesus says that to peter in matthew 16 but it says says it to all the apostles in matthew 18 that is just one about the most disputed (laughs) passages as to what on earth that means because it sounds like everything's upside down then because the way and the way it's interpreted in dogma is that the pope gets to make rules that god will follow effectively that's what it sounds like so yes is um, is there another way of interpreting that section? well if you look in the greek then the second the second part of it is in the future perfect so it's what you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven what's already been decided in heaven is what you will receive and then you will declare it on earth it's not that the apostles make something up and heaven has to go along with it it's that the apostles receive from the lord what has been decided in heaven and that is what they proclaim the binding and loosing apparently was a was a, a jewish thing the pharisees would bind and loose things and that was what is allowed and what is not allowed maybe it's just declaring things about the christian life what is appropriate you know how it's appropriate for christians to live and so the apostles would declare what is appropriate for a christian behavior but it's not something they made up it's something that had already been decided in heaven Right, and then okay. just, just passed on by them. The last thing I wanted to ask about was uh, a plenary indulgence, because yes. that's not something that comes up in a lot of other denominations. Right. How would you explain what a plenary indulgence or a plenary indulgence is? Right. 
In Catholicism, there are venial sins and mortal sins. If you commit a mortal sin, then if you don't confess that to a priest and do a particular penance, then if you die, you'll go to hell. But if you go to a priest and you confess the mortal sin and he gives you a, a penance to do, like saying prayers or something, then you're forgiven the eternal consequences, but there are temporal consequences which, which remain. So even although your sin is forgiven, when you die, you may have to go to purgatory for millions of years in order to purge yourself of, of that sin. But there's something which the Catholic Church teaches that um, in heaven there's a treasury of merit, which is the merits of Mary and Jesus and the saints, who did more than they needed to do to obtain their own salvation. And so the Catholic Church who has the power of the keys, can draw on these merits and, and give them to people as an indulgence. So what it means, a plenary indulgence means that you have all the temporal guilt of your sin forgiven by prayer, almsgiving, pilgrimages to certain places. So if you die, having received a plenary indulgence, you will go straight to heaven. You won't have to go to purgatory. It was a big scandal in the Reformation about, about indulgences. It what, what actually was the cause of the Reformation, what Luther was scandalised by. And the indulgences were kind of forgotten uh, in the 20th century, but apparently the idea has been revived over the last 20 years or so. Adrian, thank you so much. Was that helpful? Then? Uh, that was really helpful because okay. there's some stuff I've not known. I've, I've spent my entire adult life going, I don't know what that is. Let's <laughs> yeah, just okay. skim over it and come back to it later. Well, th there's no such thank thing anywhere else apart from Catholicism as, as indulgences. There's, there's nothing else. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. Okay, nice okay. to talk to you. So that was Adrian. What did you think of that? Um, I thought he was a very learned man. I just really like listening to him talk. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he seemed really knowledgeable. I quite liked um, when he was talking about plenary indulgences. Mm. Like That's the bit that I, I sort of picked up on, where it's basically one part of the Catholic Church just being like, so here's a ticket, and I've put a little note on it saying, don't <laughs> spurn him, let him in. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's almost like it's almost like getting like a hall pass or something like that. Yeah, it just yeah, it, it is. Seems bizarre. Like what? there's a bit of extra grace going. So if you just <laughs> pay for for this new chapel, then you can buy yourself a plenary indulgence, and that will get you in. That it is, is it, yeah. it, it's a genius business move. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. what I will yeah. say. But some of it really shocked me, like the idea that papal infallibility only came around in the 1800s in sort of Victorian. Yeah. Era, which yeah, that seems I, like it should have been around from the off. The thing that I find fascinating is Christianity starts off as this quite rough and tumble, passionate uh, religious belief. And then obviously it evolves to be the state religion. And then you lose that radicalness and you become part of the establishment. And that affects the way people think of what Christian is. And it mm. affects the message and it affects the translations like we talked about last week. Let's get into finding the faith in the film. Da, 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 da. I'm getting more confident so, with that every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This film has so much we could talk about that we would be absolutely be here for ages. So instead, I'm just going to focus on one or two things that jump out to me. And listeners, if we miss something that you really wanted to talk about, let us know and we'll have a chat about it in the comments. So in this film, some of it is based on proper Bible teaching 
and some of it is just bits of fantasy that sounded vaguely religious-y enough for Kevin Smith to get away with. I'm assuming that there's no such thing as the 13th Apostle, or at least maybe it was some kind of one um, of those conspiracy theories. <laughs> a lot of people would argue that uh, that Mary Magdalene is the 13th Apostle, because there's a phrase, if we didn't have women preachers, nobody would know that Jesus was resurrected in the first place, because she was the first person to see him resurrected. I could just imagine her just being like, bloody hell, you, you were dead, you look good. <laughs> Nice one, son. I mean, more or less. That's the that's the general gist. Obviously, there is there's some stuff that's taken directly from the Bible. There's some stuff that is taken from uh, other religions. Loki comes straight out of Norse mythology. Yes. Metatron is not found in the Bible. He's found in some sort of uh, Kabbalah, uh, mystical Kabbalah texts. And he's found in the Apocrypha. Have you ever heard of the Apocrypha? I haven't heard of it. I think you might have mentioned it last episode, actually. So let me let me try and explain this to <clears throat> to you now. Imagine it's three hundred years in the future, okay? okay? And people are looking back at early writings from the twenty first century. And let's say, for example, that they are looking at Doctor Who. Okay. okay, so they're trying to work out what is official canon, what's official Doctor Who, and what is fan fiction, I what see. is stuff that's that's not canon. Okay, and you're trying to do this after the fact. You're trying to do this after everybody who's written it has all been dead for quite some time. Okay, yeah. the apocrypha is the stuff that's considered to be not canon. That is not. It's not officially recognised by the church as being a, a sacred religious text. So okay. some people sort of think of Apocrypha as like the fan fiction of the... Uh, of, <laughs> like of done, the, yeah. made by Big Finish Productions. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, the Apocrypha is the stuff that isn't quite official uh, biblical teaching. So you've got the main Star Wars films and then you've got the expanded universe, which isn't actually yeah. canon, which yeah. is a you shame, get the, <laughs> may yeah. I say. You get, the, you get the idea, you know? Yeah. So characters like the Metatron come from the Apocrypha. Azrael, in Islam, he's the angel of death and in some other Jewish texts as well. The main thing I wanted to talk about is this big question, does God have a sense of humour? As it states at the start of the film, just look at the platypus. <laughs> just look at the platypus. I mean, yeah. he must have a sense of humour somewhere down the line there's no jokes that we can find directly in the bible unless we talk about fitting a camel through the eye of a needle which we discussed last week poor camel if you hear it from uh, in a mass by somebody droning out the words in a really dull way then yeah it doesn't sound funny but if you picture somebody like donald glover doing that in a stand-up routine <laughs> then <laughs> well I yeah get, i start to giggle just thinking about it so this is something that fascinates um Kevin Smith as well and in the original screenplay of Dogma that was published he wrote an introduction and I'm going to read that out to you now because mm -hmm. he talks about a, a formative experience and for me reading this had a major impact on me and how I see God as well. He talks about people like the Defamation League who were protesting his work and he says the irony is that it was a nun who was responsible for Dogma and he talks about a particular nun called Sister Teresa now, uh, aside from being devoutly Catholic, Sister Teresa was also fiercely Christian. No, the two don't always go together, although they should. Sister Teresa was well-versed in the current translations of the Gospels, as well as a historical context that made even more clear what Christ was trying to say and why exactly he probably said it. 
It was these fascinating new insights into the words and actions of our Lord that she would share with us daily in religion class. The seeds of dogma can be found in one such lecture of Sister Teresa's. We just read the passage in the Gospels in which Christ referred to Peter as a rock, the rock upon which he, Christ, would build his church. And it had little significance to us beyond that of a possible question of some future quiz. But Sister Teresa had a new spin for us. Jesus was being facetious when he called Peter a rock, she informed us. He knew that Peter was the weakest of the apostles. And he knew too that Peter would betray him three times during his passion. How do you know that? Someone foolishly asked. Because he was God, she patiently replied. But he was also a man, a human being. And he had a sense of humour. Here was his wishy-washy friend Peter, who we knew was a guy with very little backbone. And Christ was having a little fun with him, telling Peter he was a rock and winking at the other apostles, who also knew that Peter was like a reed in the wind, bending whichever way the wind blew. Wait a second, I asked. Christ was picking on Peter when he called him a rock? In fun, yes. He was teasing his friend, not unlike the way you tease your friends, Kevin. And with that, Sister Teresa did something for me that no one had ever tried to do before and gave me something that has remained with me ever since. She humanized Christ. Suddenly, Christ wasn't just someone I could never identify with in a million years because he was God. Suddenly Christ was also a guy, and a guy with friends, and a guy with friends who wasn't above taking the mick out of them once in a while. Christ was a walking, talking dude who just also happened to be the son of man. And before he would offer himself up as the sacrificial lamb, he ate, slept, breathed, ran, played, thought, felt, loved, wept, spoke, smiled, probably farted, and laughed and maybe even laughed after he farted, particularly when his friends were around. I read that extract when I was probably about 16 or 17, 18, that sort of thing. And that for me opened up a lot of things. It helped me to see Jesus in an entirely different way because it's not something we talk about. Jesus farting is not something that comes up a lot in Bible study groups. The hilarious thing is, is that Peter was pretty wishy-washy. He would say, I want to be your best, Lord. I'm I'm desperate. Peter is the guy that says, (laughs) oh, no, Lord, you won't wash my feet. And then Jesus says, no, I have to wash your feet. And then then Peter will say, okay, well, if you're going to wash my feet, wash me from head to toe. And Jesus is like, dude, the feet will do. Chill out. It's it's, it's all right. It's okay. Peter Peter (laughs) is really quite insecure a lot of time. He's desperate to please. So, and... I don't know if you remember in Adrian's interview, he calls it that the name Peter means sort of stone. There's, there's Petra. Pet, Petra and Petros, you know, so there's yeah. stone and then there's rock. And it's like, yeah, Peter, the rock. You're going to be the rock on which I build my church. The funny thing is, is that's also kind of true. After the day of Pentecost, Peter is the first one to actually preach the gospel to, to people. Peter becomes one of the main apostles. Peter is one of the first people to actually preach to the Gentiles. If it wasn't for Peter, then non-Jewish people like myself would never have got a look in at the gospel or salvation. So this is the funny thing. When you're God and man, yes, you can take the mick out of people, but you can also take the mick out of them while saying the truth as well. And I absolutely love that. I think that's fantastic. It's a nice way of bridging the gap between God the man and God the Mm. deity. You know, like it's, it's able to gel them you know mm. make them sort of a little bit more sort of easy to digest because like you've said like when i remember being in re class and being like yeah this is dry you know like and it's yeah. uh, and it just it never it's just one of the things i was and i understood it but mm-hmm. i was i wasn't interested <laughs> and all that means is you just weren't 
taught very well by particularly interesting teachers. And there's one um, thing. Did you know that Jesus had a nickname for himself? <laughs> no. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus means uh, the Lord saves. And Yeshua also means the Lord saves. And the anglicized version of uh, Yeshua is Joshua. So yes. Je Jesus and, and Joshua mean the same thing. So he probably would have needed a nickname because there were plenty of Yeshua's floating about. Yeah. You know? Now, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Why does he do that? Just just the Son of Man? Yeah, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man will do this. The Son of Man will die and be resurrected. It's this interesting little title he has for himself. And the thing is, throughout the course of human history, God is referred to by tons of different things. He's referred to as the... Lion of the tribe of Judah, Emmanuel, Messiah, uh, Shepherd, all these things. But Jesus keeps on calling himself Son of Man. I have a, a little theory about this. And again, do you remember we talk about headcanon? I cannot yeah. back this up in the slightest with anything theological. This is just how I think my, my God is. But first of all, if he calls himself the Son of God, he's going to get slaughtered. And Jesus knew he had to be crucified, but it had yeah. to be done at a certain time, at a certain place, in a certain... He had a message to give out, and it, if he, if that message got cut short, then that would have lasting ramifications. When we say son of man, obviously, we know that that's literally not the case. That, that Joseph, who is married to his mother, wasn't actually, or at least as Christians believe, wasn't actually his biological father. He's his, he's his stepdad. So the son of man thing is an odd thing because it sounds like contradictory. But if you think of it as more like the son of mankind, I can't help but feel that Jesus is using son of man like somebody uses a cool new job title. Ah, yes. Well, of course. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm Giles. I'm a, I'm a writer, uh, you know, or a media coordinator or, yeah, I'm actually the official photographer on such and such. I think he keeps going son of man because it has novelty value for him. It's like, huh. oh, yes. Yeah, maybe. I'm a, I'm a human. I do what humans do doing all this human stuff that is what i think he's doing when he refers to himself as the son of man i like the i like the idea of him going around like this alien just sort of being like hello yes i am normal man i like wine and bread look at my sandals i wear sandals like men you know it's, it's just yeah it's this it's this daft thing and again total giles headcanon i can't back that up please don't accuse me of heresy but <laughs> He keeps Sorry. on using this phrase, and it's such an interesting little phrase. That's that's what I think he's doing. I think he likes the sound of it. I think he, he enjoys it. You know? <laughs> and the, this is the fun thing I enjoy about this particular film. It talks about, do you believe? And she says, no, but I have an idea. Rufus, the 13th apostle, says, an idea can be changed. An idea can, can adapt. And first of all, our beliefs are are important they are central to to what we have but most christians anyone to call themselves a christian has to believe that jesus was alive jesus was the son of god he died and he was resurrected those are your, your core things and other stuff there's a there's a little bit of wiggle room there's a little bit of room to discuss do we think this or or do we think that do we think that god made the world in seven days or do we think it took billions of years and it's okay to have a little bit of a discussion on this to have to hold some ideas quite lightly held there's a few phrases like if you had a church full of a hundred people you'd have a hundred different ideas of what god's like we need to talk first before we start picketing people or 
burning people at the stake. Generally, we shouldn't really be burning anybody anyway. That's a hard no on burning just, at the stake, guys. Just, just underline that one, put it in a box. Yeah. Blanket ban. Okay. <laughs> the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, do you remember we talked about paradoxes? Yeah. So this is another central paradox that nobody can really unpack. But the idea is <clears throat> that Jesus was fully God and fully human he wasn't a he wasn't a demigod like uh, hercules or anything like that he was the son of god and god at the same time and also he was a guy that got hungry he was a guy that got angry there are numerous references to jesus taking a nap he takes a nap in the middle of a storm or on the on the sea of galilee jesus i imagine is the kind of person that got hangry you know that if he didn't <laughs> have some food in him he would get quite cranky he was completely human and completely God at the same time. And there's this belief that every human being that believes in God, that their faith, if you had to measure it on a quantitative level, would be subatomic. And if you really believed in God, if you believed in him fully and totally without any shadow of, of doubt whatsoever, it would not only change your personality, but it would change what you can do. So you would be able to walk on water you would be able to heal people with a touch. And there's a line that Jesus says to his apostles in Luke 17, verse 6. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. There's even a line somewhere else. I forget exactly which verse, but he says that if you if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you would be able to tell a mountain, get into the sea. And the mountain would obey you. I'm going to go try that one day. I give mean, it, actually, give it I don't go. have enough faith, so I won't think I'll be able to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the idea is that Jesus was able to do the things he was able to do, not necessarily because he was the son of God, but because he was a man who believed in God so completely. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense. Mm. I mean, if I was going to relate that to anything in my experience, then it would be when somebody is in the throes of adrenaline, for example, or something like, mm. like, like that. Yeah. Pepped up on adrenaline, you can lift up a car. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. I, I, there are obvious real-world parallels to that that sort of feeling. You can do anything that you put your mind to in your life, yeah. in your existence. It's a fascinating idea, and it, it's borne out in in a lot of things because Peter is able to, to heal people. He, he, they're walking past a, a beggar, a crippled beggar, who asks for, for, for money, and he says, I don't have any cash on me, but walk in Jesus' name. And the beggar gets up, and he walks. He's like, oh, wow, I've got totally got legs that totally work <laughs> nice one because <laughs> the beggars from the north obviously we need to do a bible translation the nwv like the new warrington version or something <laughs> like that i'd love that i'd, I'd people I'd would 100%. pay 100 good money for that you and i have talked in the past about how kevin smith is a phenomenal writer and yes. for me there are two monologues in this film that i absolutely love one is the angel Bartleby being so angry at how well human beings are treated, how they are treated with mercy and grace, whereas angels are servants and they have to follow the will of God. They don't have a choice in it. But the one I want to talk about is the Metaton's speech to Bethany when she finds out that she's the last scion. So the idea of Jesus having nephews and nieces is not impossible at all, but 
I couldn't tell you whether there are any still in existence. Let's put it that way. Yeah, right, I mean... <laughs> what I want to talk about is the particular scene where Bethany has found out that she's the last Scion and the Metatron appears to her. She runs off in the woods and she says, uh, I don't want this, it's too big. And Metatron says to her, that's what Jesus said. I had to tell him. And can you imagine how that hurt the father? Not to be able to tell the son himself because one word from his lips would destroy the boy's frail human form. So I was forced to deliver the news to a scared child who wanted nothing more than to play with other children. I had to tell this little boy that he was God's only son and that it meant a life of persecution and eventual crucifixion at the hands of the very people he came to enlighten and redeem. He begged me to take it back as if I could. He begged me to make it all untrue. And I'll let you in on something, Bethany. And this is something I've never told anyone. If I had the power, I would have. That line right there. I remember watching phenomenal. that and also just Alan Rickman. And it just speaks volumes. It's phenomenal because we, we hear the idea of Jesus being a normal man. We rarely think of Jesus being a normal child. That, there's, that there was some point where he was just a kid and he just wanted to go out and play. And then there must have been some point where that changed because i mean the frustrating thing is between 12 and 30 we don't know what jesus was doing there's some there's 18 years missing and i mean as yeah. as rufus the 13th apostle says that's some pretty bad storytelling yeah, as yeah. a teenager growing up i really could have done with knowing how teenage jesus would have dealt with certain situations you know like you know like the young indiana jones chronicles you can have the young jesus chronicles you know <laughs> It also gets into another concept about being a deity and stuffing all that divinity into just one small baby who then grows up to be a man. I find that fascinating as well. I imagine God becoming human, like fighting with one arm tied around your back or sort of getting down on your knees to talk to, to, talk to a small child. Yes, you can make yourself bigger. Yes, you can make yourself more powerful and the rest of it, but you've chosen not to. You've put like a, a limit. You've put a restriction on yourself. And that's what Jesus did when he became human. And it's fascinating and it has always stuck with me. I, and... I can't imagine how frightened, like how like absolutely mortally terrified that child mm. must have been. I'm trying to think of something similar, but imagine if you were told it is destined, it's completely predestined, we've got everything in place, and there is no way that we can change this because it's just the way things are. What we know is that fear didn't leave him because in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest, he's there saying, Father, if possible, take this cup away from me, take this challenge away from me because I don't want to do it. He's just freaking scared and it's so humanizing the thing that i've always been grateful to kevin smith for is that i feel like with this little bit of christian headcanon he humanized jesus for me in a way that not a lot of other people have done that's it for the finding the faith in the film section and that's pretty much it for our, our episode this week i've had a great time phil have you had a great time always our next film series that we're going to be looking at is harry potter and i hope you join us then bye bye God in Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Fact checking by Christina Stanard Good. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin. Tech support from Claire Goff. God in Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case just tell Phil through the medium of traditional Welsh folk dancing.